Well, last week we looked at verse 16. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verse 16, Paul tells us that the gospel, which means good news, this good news about what Jesus accomplished for unrighteous people through his life, death, and resurrection, it is the power of God for salvation. It is how God has expressed his power in time and history to save people like you and me, sinful people like you and me. When he says save, he means salvation from the guilt of sin, yes, forgiveness for our sins, uh, but it's also uh, salvation from slavery to sin. We have been saved from, from sin's mastery over us. We're no longer in bondage to it, so we can live a life uh, that is increasingly free from sin. And we are saved from judgment for sin. Ultimately, that means we're, we're saved from going to hell, which everybody likes to hear. But ultimately, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Sin will no longer exist in the new heavens and new earth. And what a glorious day that will be. There will be no curse on the earth. There will be no weeds and there will be no sin. There will be no broken relationships between, uh, between humans and between humanity and God. Everything will be restored and like it was intended to be. The gospel is news telling us what God has done to rescue us and all of creation from sin. And of course he tells us that the appropriate response is to faith, to believe, to trust, to put your trust in God's provision in Christ. And when you do so, you're forgiven, as we said, freed from bondage to sin, walking a path where you're increasingly seeing that the Lord work in your life. And, and one day when you die, you will not go to hell, but you will be with God forever. That's what it means. In the, the, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, in verse 17, we get to the explanation of how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we read here verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A question that we all ask ourselves, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, is how will my life be judged and what is the standard by which my life will be judged and who will do the judging? And not a lot of people think about that explicitly. I'll, I'll admit that. But I think it underlines underlies everything that we do, those haunting questions, the question of justifying my life and looking back upon it and being happy with how I lived it and what I did. In the movie Rocky, uh, we have a, a guy who is uh, nothing special, uh, Rocky Balboa, and he's given this chance to fight the champion, Apollo Creed. He's no one's ever been able to beat Apollo Creed. In fact, no one's ever made it to the end of the fight with Apollo Creed. He knocks everybody out. And in kind of a publicity stunt, Apollo Creed says, we're going to give some outsider, some no-name, a chance. And they choose Rocky Balboa. And so Rocky 
starts training for this, and, and one night he kind of goes out and he's walking around and he realizes, you know, he can't beat this guy. He's not in the same league as this guy. And he comes back home and he's talking to Adrian, his wife, and he says he, he doesn't mind losing to Creed because he was nothing before. You know, it's not going to mean anything. And, and Adrian says, oh, you shouldn't think that. And here's his response. He says, oh, come on, Adrian. It's true, I was nobody. But that don't matter either, you know, because I was thinking it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens up my head either. Because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed, and if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky is trying to justify his existence in one fight. He wants to be able to be judged by whom? His neighbors and himself as somebody who's not just another bum from the neighborhood, but someone that they can all look to and say, well, he, you know, he went 15 rounds with the champ. Yeah, the champ opened up his head. The champ whipped him in the end, but he went the distance. And that's, that's what Rocky is building his life around, to go the distance with Creed, to justify his existence. Now, the question we need to address today in our own lives is, what is it? What is that thing that, that we're looking to to justify our existence, to, to uh, feel like we have the approval. Whose approval are we looking for? You know, if we are living our lives for our careers, which uh, is a, a great temptation for all of us, you know, we want to be respected in our field, whatever it is that we might be doing. We want people to look at us and say, well, there's a, a person that's successful. But how few people actually achieve that? Because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is we always feel like we come up short. I mean, who, I, I don't know if even the, the greatest person in the world, the, the most wealthy or the most successful person, actually stops and says, you know, I'm the greatest, and I'm here at the tip top of, of the, the pinnacle. And, because I think once they get there, they realize it's just not that great. You know, as they asked one of the great millionaires in history, you know, how much is enough? And his answer was, a little more. It's never enough. It's never enough. And it's hard to justify our existence. Because we think, if we just had this, if we just achieved that, then I would feel good about myself. I would feel good about my life. But as I look back over history, and, and look back at my own family history, you know, I love to do genealogical research, and you see people's lives... Uh, come to a tragic end, people's lives cut short, or, or people living in a rural area and, you know, they've gone forgotten. And you don't know anything about these people. Uh, one time in, in one year in my family, five people from the immediate, my great-great-great-grandfather, my of, four of his children, they all died within the space of four or five months. And their lives were just ended. And I don't have any information about any of them except the final newspaper uh, obituaries. One of them died. Who was, he was a doctor. He had moved from Alabama to Mississippi, and he was 
you know, probably making a difference in a community in Mississippi. He came back home to see his father who was dying. That's my great-great-great-grandfather. And he ended up getting sick, and he dies. His life cut short, a young man. His brother, on the other hand, you, you, you look at Frank Horn, and you say, oh, he's, he's a doctor, and he's going to do something great in the world. But then you look at James Horn, his brother, and uh, one, one day, right after his brother Frank died, uh, he was arrested for, as the newspaper said, turbulence, which in those days I think meant disturbing the peace, uh, drunk and disorderly. And so he, went, he uh, was able to pay his bond, and he went back to the saloon where he had gotten arrested before. The deputy that arrested him walked into the back of the saloon. He drew his gun on the deputy, and the deputy shot him dead. And that was the end of his life. You look at people's lives and their stories, especially when you do genealogical research, and you think, you know, they, they lived and then they died. And no one really remembers anything about them. The only thing that we have is a newspaper article that shares the sordid details or the sad ending of their lives. If you came to be pumped up today, I'm sorry, that's kind of depressing and dreadful. But when you look at your life as a whole, how are you trying to justify your existence? And, and, and by what standard are you using to judge it? And who is going to be the judge? Well, Christianity has answers to all those questions. Christianity says, first of all, that God is the judge. He's the creator. He created everything. He is the reason that we exist. He has given us breath. He has given us life. He formed us in our mother's wombs. He's given us purpose. He's given us a rule and a law to follow. He, he has given us the standard of righteousness. That's the word that's being used here. The standard of righteousness. And one day we will have to answer to him. That's what Christianity says. But most people don't, they may affirm that with their lips, but they don't live as if that were true. What we want is the approval of our peer group or our family or our community. We want to make a name for ourselves. And the standard by which we judge that is not really God's standard. It's maybe the standard of the community, the standard of humanity. You know, in our modern world, we have decided that man is the measure of all things instead of God being the measure of all things. And that's just not modernity, that's humanism that's, that, that came in in the 1500s, 1600s and has permeated through all of life and it's a default mode of the human heart. You know, we want to be the measure of all things. We want to be in God's place. So God is, is kind of pushed to the side and we judge ourselves by what fellow human beings think about us and what we think about ourselves. But Paul here, when he's explaining the gospel, and he's, he's telling these Romans how much he wants to proclaim it to them. Uh, he is excited about it, and he's got great news to tell them, and he can't wait to get to Rome to tell them all about it, even though they've already heard it. He wants to rehearse it to them again and again and again. And why is he so excited about it? Because this message, and this... this uh, uh, message of Jesus' life, death, his resurrection, and, and what he did to, to save people 
uh, it changes us. It, it makes a difference in everything in our lives, in our perspective. And it allows us to have a relationship with God, to be approved by God. So what is it? Let's look at the text here. He says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that word righteousness or justice, uh, uh, justification, uh, right, all those, that's the same word. That's the same Greek word. The righteousness of God. When we talk about righteousness, righteous, being right, declared righteous, just, just, justice, justification, justified, um, it's a legal term. When we uh, think about the law and, and our relation to it, we are either guilty or not guilty of breaking it. And if we are not guilty, then we are just. We are righteous. We are justified. If it's challenged, suppose you got arrested for, a, for some crime that you didn't commit. You would go to, to court. You might be arrested. Go, to, go and appear before the judge. The evidence would be put before the, the court, and you would be either declared guilty or not guilty. If you didn't commit the crime, the evidence would, you know, in, a, in a just court, would say you're not guilty. In other words, you're justified. You have the approval of the state. They looked and measured you by the standard, and you have met its approval. You are approved. Now, when we talk about the righteousness of God being revealed, what we're talking about here is being approved by God. He can look at us and accept us and approve of us by his standard. Now the problem is, verse 18 and following, all the way through chapter 2 and on into chapter 3 of Romans, which we'll look at in the coming weeks, we are not righteous. We are not righteous at all. If we are judged by God's standard, we fail the test. We have not kept his law. We might look great to the world, we might look like the most moral person out there, make all the right decisions, but we would be judging ourselves by the world's standard, by human standards. But when we come to God's standard, the only thing that passes is perfect obedience, and not one of us has it. He goes on to say in chapter 3, by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. It, it is impossible to be declared righteous by keeping God's law, by being a moral person. We've all failed the test. Paul's saying the great news is that there is a righteousness of God revealed. And what he means there, when you, when you see uh, a term like righteousness of God or the love of God, you can take those in different ways. So... I think it's easy to understand when we say the love of God. If, if you see the phrase the love of God, like you do in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, the love of God constrains us. The love of God can mean my love for God, the love of God, uh, the love of God that I have for him, or it could mean the love of God that he has for me. You can take that in both ways. When we look at this term, the righteousness of God, same thing applies. It could be 
God's righteousness that he himself has, he is perfectly righteous. He defines what righteousness is. He is always just, always fair, always right. But, it, but in this case, as we look at it in context, what Paul's saying throughout the whole book of Romans, which we'll be exploring in the coming weeks, it is clear that he's talking about not about God's characteristic of righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from God, that God has provided of which he approves. He's talking about this, that God has become a man, Jesus Christ, and God came to earth and he perfectly fulfilled the law. He was the only truly righteous human being who has ever lived. He perfectly kept every iota of, of God's law. And he did it in his actions. He did it in his thoughts. He did it in the motives of his heart. He did it not only by fulfilling the law that we're all given, but he did it as well by fulfilling the command that the Father had given him to go and be a sacrifice for sins and to fulfill all the obedience that he was given. Christ was perfectly obedient. See, we often think that salvation is just the forgiveness of sins, that, that our slate is wiped clean by, by God. But it, and, it, and it is that, but it's more than that. Not only is our slate wiped clean, but we are declared righteous because Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. It's like you know, having a whiteboard. Mike was telling me that he was putting up a whiteboard for his classroom over at the base. And, uh, and I was thinking about that whiteboard, and you, know, you, you clean it off. You, you, if, you're, if your sins were written on the whiteboard, when Jesus died for those sins, you could, you, they were wiped away, remembered no more, cleansed. But Jesus doesn't stop there. What he did was fulfill all righteousness on your account. So all Christ's righteousness is credited to the one who puts their faith in him. And that means the whiteboard of your life has all Jesus' righteous, righteousness written down on it. Your whiteboard is filled with the miracles that Jesus did, with how he loved everybody he ever came in contact with. His, the whiteboard of your life, of the one who has put his, faith in, his or her faith in Christ, is filled with his obedience to his Father. It is completely... F- so when God looks at your whiteboard, he sees Christ's righteousness. So that's when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. So that's the good news that Paul's saying here. There's a righteousness that doesn't come from keeping the law. There's a righteousness that that comes not from inside yourself. You can have approval from God that God gives you through Christ. It's the righteousness of God, and it is by faith. It's by faith, he says, from, from faith to faith, or by faith to faith. There's lots of ways you can translate that little phrase, but it means from faith, beginning to end. It is completely by faith, by trusting in Christ by looking at what he did and saying, I'm putting my faith there. I think the best way to describe that act of faith is by thinking about John Bunyan. In, in he, he wrote a, a treatise or a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It was his testimony. 
And if you don't know John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the great work. He, he lived in the 15, 1600s, a uh, great Baptist preacher. And he's talking about how uh, he was under the conviction. You know, he, he just was, had a tender conscience. And every little thing just wounded him and made him feel like he was not worthy. Kind of like Rocky. You know, it just, I'm a bum. I'm a bum for the neighborhood. Whereas Rocky was trying to justify his existence by lasting 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Or maybe you are trying to justify your existence by being a good person or successful in your career or have children that grow up and are good, good uh, people in the community. John Bunyan says this, Every little touch would hurt my tender conscience, but one day, as I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence, Your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand, and I suddenly realized, There is my righteousness. Wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say, Where is your righteousness? For it was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now my chains fell off indeed. I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fears. I went home rejoicing for the love and grace of God. Now I can look from myself to him. And I realized that all those weak character qualities in my heart were like the pennies that rich men carry in their pocket when their gold is safe under lock and key. Christ is my treasure, my righteousness. Now Christ was my wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and salvation. I love that little image he gives there. You know, our righteousness and the things that we think of make us approved of God are like pennies in the pocket of a millionaire when his, when his real treasure is under lock and key in the bank. You know, our righteousness, you know, whatever we're trying to do to, to get approval from God, it's not going to work. Uh, it doesn't meet his standard. But God has done something wonderful. He's met the standard for us. And it's only by faith in him that we can have the righteousness of Christ credited to us, and we can say with Bunyan, my righteousness is there. But before, on the right hand of the, the throne of God the Father Almighty, that's where my righteousness is. It rests there. It makes a difference in your life. All of a sudden, your life is opened up to, the, to living uh, out of gratitude to the Lord for his goodness and mercy to you. I hope that's your experience, and I hope that as you hear this today, that you will put your faith in Christ and trust in him and his righteousness alone. For salvation. We're going to be exploring this more in the coming days, especially when we get to the end of chapter 3. If you want to read ahead, go ahead. I can't, uh, can't stop you, and I wouldn't dare, because that is such a wonderful uh, distillation of the gospel there in verse 20 and following towards the end of chapter 3. But let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we come to the table and, and ask God to seal these things to our hearts. Father, we thank you again for your word as always. And we pray that the gospel would make an impression upon us, Lord. Help us to understand this concept of your righteousness that you have revealed to us in the gospel, that Christ has fulfilled it all for us in our place as our substitute. He stood where, where we've stood, and he has paid the penalty through his death. He has fulfilled all righteousness in his life, 
And Lord, we see that, that by his resurrection that, that his sacrifice was approved by you. We rejoice in that and are thankful for it. Lord, may we, with true grateful hearts, come to your table and, and revel in the grace that is ours in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.